0: you remember seeing, uh, and and I imagine this must have happened somewhere in the 40s or the 50s, I may have the dates wrong, but a bridge that began to vibrate, do any of you remember seeing that? And then the bridge began to go like this, and this huge concrete steel bridge was flapping as if it was a flag in the wind. How, How many of you have seen that? Okay, a number of you have. You, you know what I'm talking about then. And then what ultimately happened? The bridge collapsed. And the bridge was built there for the purpose of seeing that people can get from one side to the other safely. Sadly, that bridge crumbled. Some of you will remember years ago down in Louisiana, there was a bridge that collapsed and people plunged to their death because they did not realize that the bridge upon which they were counting had been broken and they went right off the end of the bridge. I think it was, was it up in Minnesota a few years ago? Pardon, uh, Minneapolis, where another bridge collapsed and people went off the end, expecting to get to the other side safely. And there are times in people's lives where they believe that they will pass from this life into the next safely... But the reality is the bridge that they're counting on is going to crumble underneath them. We have looked in the first chapter and into the second chapter of Romans about two specific groups of people. First, the apostle addressed the issue of the pagans. And the pagans were people who, knowing God, did not worship him or glorify him as God, but they made gods of their own. They don't have to be... Uh, uh, people that bow down before idols. They could be people in our society that are absolutely pagan, not recognizing the true and the living God, but creating gods within their own minds. And Paul made it very clear, the pagan is lost. He he has no hope. There's, There's no forgiveness in a pagan's way of looking at things. But then he took us to look at people who are moral, who perhaps know that there's a God, but they don't embrace the true and the living God by coming to know Christ as their Savior, and they try to live a life that is pleasing to God, but what they find out is that they are going to be judged in truth, they are going to be judged without any favoritism, and the very works that they perform are going to demonstrate that they were sinful beings who did not deserve to come into a sinless environment because their sins had not been paid for, they had not been cleansed, because they had never trusted in Christ as their Savior. So he's already brought us to those two and told us they're not going to make it. But then he comes to the third, and the third is one that looks as if it's going to be uh, someone that, boy, if anybody's going to make it to heaven, it's got to be these people, the Jews. And so he addresses this right off the bat there in verse 17 when he begins to tell us about what the Jews were counting on as the bridge that ultimately would get them safely to the other side. And what they didn't realize was that these bridges were going to crumble. The very first bridge that they were relying upon was the law. They were the recipients of God's revelation to man in the law, and Paul addresses that, by the way, he is a Jew, and so he understands this thoroughly. Verse 17, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest in the law and make your boast in God. In other words, you believe that in the law you have a code of morality that will jettison you to the place of acceptance before a holy God. But he goes on to describe how this is going to unfold. He says, listen, you, you know his will... And you approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And then he goes on to specify certain characteristics that manifest themselves through their lives. What he is basically saying is this. You who are Jews, um, a name that comes probably, probably comes from those who are identified with Judah, the oldest of Isaac's children, The word Judah itself actually means praise. And so when they were identified as Jews, it was a way of identifying them as part of that family that descended from Jacob. And so those Jews had been given very, very special privilege. God had set them apart as a people for himself, not to arbitrarily give them forgiveness and life but to give them all of the benefits that would be necessary to communicate the truth of who the true and the living God really is. And he started by giving them the law through Moses. And in this, they began thinking that, boy, you know what, we've got it all together. We become the the, uh, the light that shines to the Gentile world because we have the law. And what had happened in their possession of the law is that it became a replacement for God rather than actually drawing them to him. See, the law was never given to provide eternal life for people for this simple reason. There is within us a nature that cannot conform to the demands of the law. And the Lord tells us that if you have broken the law in one part, you are guilty of all of the law. Well, in the Jewish mind, if they could just keep the law, then God would accept them. And in the process, what happened was they replaced the true and the living God with this code of morality thinking, well, we are really something special. We see ourselves as light. We are guides. We are instructors. We are teachers. And they lived in this realm of pride, not understanding that the purpose of the law was to help everyone understand this. You've broken it. You can't keep the law. The moral law was summarized in the Ten Commandments. And the very first one, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. We have already been lost. And I can say this to you with absolute certainty. You have not done that. Nor have I. As a result of that, all the rest of the law becomes a condemning element to me because I am now guilty before a holy God. I have not lived up to his standard. Therefore, the law was designed to do something we were singing about this morning. I run to you because I've got nothing on my own to commend me before God. So, Lord, if there is any hope for me, I have got to run to you. And that was the purpose of the law. And the Jews did not fully grasp that. They were looking at the law as uh, something by which they would find eternal life. And what they didn't understand was this. Though it raised their ethical standards, it never changed their hearts. Listen, People can raise the standard of their ethics, of their morality, by understanding that there are certain requirements to live within our society. And the truth of the matter is, you you have probably seen some of the decline in moral behavior that really has begun to manifest itself in our schools and and I've talked to you about this before, but I remember when we had to memorize scripture in public school. We read the Bible every day in public school. We prayed every morning in pub- public school. And then all of a sudden, our government says we can't do that anymore. And so this ethical standard of behavior, which was being propagated day by day, which was helping restrain sinful behavior, was taken away. And now we see the results. We see the violence. We see the immorality. We see the addictions. We see the hopelessness. Because there's absolutely no moral standard. What's the point of life? If if there is no God, if there's no lawgiver, man, I'm just going to live to enjoy life. That's it. Then when I'm dead, I'm dead. It's, it's all gone. It's, and people still believe that. For the Jew, they thought If we live by the standards of the law, God will be pleased with us, not understanding that God was concerned about a change of the heart that would reflect the law as a result of a new life that we have in Christ. Instead, they thought the law itself would be able to take care of things. So, if they could become, and the term we use is pharisaical, legalistic in their behavior, keep all of the standards, everything should be okay. But their hearts were never changed. And there was probably no better place where that became evident than at the time Christ was crucified. When the crowds yelled, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. As a result of that, there was an arrogance that was nurtured, a conceit and an arrogance in in their lives, looking as if these people had been called as the special people of God. And in reality, they were. They were set apart by God. By the way, do you understand that the Jews were not set apart by God because there was anything special about them? Do you understand that? Do you understand that they did not choose God? He chose them. Sovereignly, without coercion, seeing them as a people and understanding that most of them would not trust in him. He chose them. He made the decision because it was part of his decree. And... As a result of that, they thought they were very, very special. And that's why Paul goes on to say that uh, you, you, uh, ins- you, uh, gu- you consider yourselves uh, guides of the blind, light to those who are in darkness, instructors of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. And then he says this. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? That is a, an incredible statement because what he is saying is this. You know what is right, but in your own heart, because it has never been changed, you can't do what's right. And then he begins to call them out. And he says, here's the way you guys have been behaving. You, therefore, who teach another, do not teach yourself. You who preach that a man should not steal. Do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Can't you just hear the self-righteous hypocrite saying, well, I have never had relations with anyone other than my wife. But boy, I've had some awfully lustful thoughts. And the Lord had already made that clear that if a man commits adultery in his heart. He is guilty of adultery. Now, I've heard some foolish people say, well, then you might as well do it. The answer is absolutely not, because the consequence of the actual behavior is very different than the consequence of the thought, which is limited to between yourself and God, where the other behavior now draws other people into the mix. Does that all make sense? Just trying to explain something very quickly there. I hope that... That captures your understanding uh, do you commit adultery verse twenty two do you you who abhor idols, do you rob temples um, do you withhold that which is rightfully god's you, you you guys think you're so great you you go to the temple and you drop in loud coins so people can see you and you remember how Jesus addressed the widow who came with her two pennies and she quietly dropped them in and steps back and he says, she has done more than all the rest because she understood that giving was from the heart. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? In other words, what the Lord is nailing them on here is their hypocrisy. You, you all know what you're supposed to do, but you don't do it. You will say certain things, but they're not part of your behavior. They're not part of your character. They're not part of who you are in the dark when no one is watching. Boy, oh boy, if you're counting on the law, as the bridge that's going to bring you home. Don't you understand that because of you, the Gentiles, look, blaspheme God. They look at the people who call themselves the people of God and they wind up blaspheming the God that those people of God supposedly worship because the conduct of their lives is no different than the conduct of those who don't know the true God. You talk about a smack in the face. You have the law. You have this code of morality. But you don't live by it. When he goes further, he's going to level another charge against them. You, you, you have circumcision, a code of rituals. Notice what he says there in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Uh, how can that be? Well, let's find out. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision, you have the law, you're being circumcised, are a transgressor of the law? what, What Paul wanted them to understand was this. When circumcision was instituted, do you recall when that happened? It happened at the time that God called Abraham and set him apart to be the father of those who ultimately will be people of faith. One of the great things about Abraham, when you come to Hebrews chapter 11, he is right there at the, the head, the, this man of great faith. And he will become not only the father physically of many nations, but he will become the father of a spiritual nation, which we will look at in just a moment. But when God established the covenant with Abraham, telling him that he would give him land, that he would have a progeny that would be innumerable, that that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed, God established what we call a covenant or a pledge. And the purpose for circumcision was to demonstrate that pledge to show that Not only was this a code of rituals, but there it is. Circumcision was the sign of the pledge. In other words, when a Jewish baby was circumcised, it was a declaration that this child is part of the promise that God gave to Abraham, being a descendant of his, and as a result, the parents would demonstrate their commitment to this covenant, to the pledge, and they would have the baby circumcised. The problem came because people did the action without recognizing the need for the difference in heart that the law itself did not bring. So now they're going to be involved in this covenant exercise of circumcision and declare that they are the people of God, but never demonstrate through their lives that they really are. There was a a Jewish tradition that said, Abraham stood at the gates of Gehenna. Gehenna was the place, the Old Testament name, for the place of where people, when they died, where they went. And he would see to it that no circumcised individual would ever make it into the place of torment. And that only circumcised individuals would make it to heaven. Now, do you have a couple problems with that? <laughs> Obviously. there's a, uh, My first question is, well, where do the women go? <laughs> I was going to make some wisecracks, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I am really, oh, it's so hard. The 70 virgins that the Islamic martyrs get. <laughs> I saw a picture one time that was great. I may have told you this. I'm, I'm way off the track now, but that's what happens. Um, it showed a picture of the 70 virgins, and it had a group of elderly nuns all holding rifles. <laughs> It was great. Uh, anyway, that coming back to what we're dealing with here. That tradition basically identified the thinking of the Jewish mind. There are people today who still believe simply because they are of Jewish descent and have followed certain patterns within the covenant that that will get them to heaven. I've just heard of that again recently. And the Lord says, no, you, you can get caught up in your rituals, but they're not going to cleanse your sins. Uh, You know, the sad part is that today there are people that still do a similar thing. And i mentioned earlier when I was reading that thing about the cold weather and, um, that we'd address the issue of infant baptism. There are those who believe that when you baptize a baby, that baby has been cared for eternally. Now, I understand that that's not the only way people who baptize babies believe. Some baptize them in a similar fashion to what we do as a baby dedication. Do you you get it? And, And I understand that. I I know that. But there are those that believe that that baptism is what brings them into the kingdom of God and that they are safe because they've been baptized as a baby. Some of you probably were baptized as babies because your parents were trying to do the right thing. But let me ask you this. Did your parents show you the right thing the rest of their lives? See, that was really the issue here. You, You had these people who were submitting to the sign of the pledge, but... It really wasn't the means of salvation. Um, In their thinking, what happened was they viewed circumcision as a means of grace. That this was the means through which the Lord would bring about his grace and impart it to individuals, simply because they kept rituals. They kept rituals. And sadly, today, there are a lot of people living under the umbrella of the name Christian who, quite frankly, are trusting in rituals to bring them safely home. And God has already made it clear, that's not the way it's done. It doesn't bring his grace. And so Paul says, listen, you're trusting in the wrong thing. And then he concludes, as he goes down to verses 28 and 29, and he says this, you count on your birth, a code of descent, as it were. Notice what he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. When people would claim their descent from Abraham, what God is saying is this. He is repeating, essentially, the thought that Christ gave to the enemies of the gospel when he said to them, you count upon your descent from Abraham to be the means that will get you into heaven. And then he said, if God wanted to, he could raise up children to Abraham from these stones. That is about as clear a statement as you can make. Your descent is not going to get you to heaven. Uh, That old phrase, God has no grandchildren. In other words, just because you might come from a godly home just because you have heard the gospel over and over again, just because your parents might know Christ or your grandparents, it does not mean that you yourself have received the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and received that freely by the grace of God through faith personally in Christ that brings about a new life and transforms the heart. They missed it. We're of our father, Abraham. And as the scriptures teach us, Jews are genuine only... (laughs) They're not genuine if only once outwardly. So now what he's saying is this, and he brings into the the picture that what he said before about the circumcision, he said, listen, if a person uh, has a heart that is circumcised, in other words, it's cut off from the bondage of sin. It's cut off from the ultimate power that sin has. And one day, It will be completely cut off even from the very presence of sin. When a person knows Christ, their hearts have been circumcised and they are the ones who are going to experience the fullness of the blessing that was given to Abraham. So what Paul is saying is this. The law is not going to give you life. Circumcision is not going to give you life your descent is not going to give you life. And if anyone is counting on any of those things, they are lost. But even for believers, there's a very, very important message that comes through that which is addressed specifically to those who are lost. There are three questions I would like to ask you to answer for yourself. The first question is this. Do you rest in a system of belief or a dynamic of faith? You say, wait a minute, that sounds um, kind of contradictory. You're, you're talking about belief and faith. Aren't they the same things? Well, no. Do you all understand that I really believe that doctrine is an incredibly important dimension of our understanding of who God is and the way we walk with him. Are you all clear on that? I talk to you a lot about doctrine. But now let me go to the other side of the equation and tell you this. We might have all our doctrine down, but if we do not have a living, vibrant walk of faith with the Lord our doctrine doesn't mean much. Yes, you have to have right belief in order to behave right, but sometimes there's a short circuit that takes place in between people who know the truth and people who actually do the truth. You can't do the truth unless you know the truth, but if you know the truth it doesn't automatically imply that you're going to do the truth. You know what's right, you know what is pleasing to the Lord. Your doctrine may even be be very, very solid. But let me ask you this. Is your walk day by day of such a quality that the truth of the doctrine has made its way into your life so that everything you claim to believe, you not only believe it, but you act on it? and you live the way you're supposed to live. See, part of the problem we have today, and I think that this is part of the problem that we're facing as a nation, is those who are followers of Christ don't live all that much differently from people who don't know Christ. There's just so much similarity. We find ourselves having a lot of the same attitudes when our attitudes have to be different. And it's, and it's only because, not because you're not a believer, but it's because you you have not appropriated that which is part of your frame of knowledge into your daily walk. Um, I would love to illustrate this some way. Larry mentioned earlier, 21 Coptic Christians walk out with 21 ISIS captors they kneel down before the captor and as they pray and as they sing the captors take their blades and cut off their heads do you know that Christ died for those captors too my natural way of thinking is to say this Just nuke the whole bunch. Nuke them all. And that is not what God would want. What God wants is for us to pray for them. And if God allows the level of courage that's necessary to go and give them the gospel too. That's getting from here to here. Now, don't anybody think this, that I am a pacifist who does not believe that military action is necessary to stop the spread of their philosophy. But what I am saying is, to stop them is one thing, but to do what the Lord would want us to do is to be able first, if we have the opportunity, to give them the gospel so that they can be saved too. Do you know what would really change all this? If all those jokers got saved, that, that would change it, wouldn't it? And we wouldn't have to nuke them. And we wouldn't have to send Americans to die. And there wouldn't be Iraqis that have to die. Or Syrians. Or Nigerians with Boko Haram. The second question we have to ask ourselves, do you rest in a... That's not it. Do you rest in a code of observances or in a heart that has been circumcised? When we accept Christ as Savior, the Bible says we pass into a realm, and this this is so incredible, in which God praises us. The reason he does is because he sees the righteousness of his Son. Look at the end of verse 29, where it says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the Spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. God looks at the person who accepts Christ as Savior, and he praises them because they have believed him and they have become the recipients of his grace. Have you? Have you? Thirdly, he says this, do you rest in a facade of identity or in a genuine identification? There is... um, Something that happened to the Jews at this time, and I'm, I would suspect that this was in Paul's mind when he wrote this. When the Greeks, and, and you understand that the Greeks are Gentiles, so let, let me use, the anybody that's non-Jewish is considered in the scriptures a Greek or, depending on your translation, a Gentile. The Gentiles, who were pagans, and in some cases moralists, had the belief that, that when a people were conquered, their gods had been conquered. And so in the Roman mind, as they would read this, they looked at Israel and they said, "Uh, listen, Israel's gods must not be the real gods for this simple reason. They have lost. They've been beaten. We have beaten their gods. And in addition to that, they believed this that the people were a reflection of what their God was like. So if you lived a life of immorality, oh, your God must be immoral. If you lived a, God, uh, lived a life of purity, oh, your God must be a pure God. That is exactly what happens today. people look at our lives and they raise the question, what kind of God do you worship? And what they're left with, what do people think of the Lord our God because of you? Would you ask yourself that question? What do people think about our God as they look at you? Do they know, first of all, that you have accepted Christ as your Savior? If not, and the Lord is speaking to your heart today, and you say, I I need this forgiveness of sins. I don't know where else to turn. There is an emptiness within my heart. You know, I do believe this. I do believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I am trusting in him to save me from the penalty of my sin and to grant me forgiveness and life. And the Bible says when you believe that, you pass from death into life. And most of us here have probably made that decision. Lord, I I am trusting you. Now my question is this. What do people think about our God as they look at us? Let's stand. Father, we uh, are challenged each time we come to your word. And Lord, as we've looked at these first two chapters in this book, the focus has been upon those who are lost and the dilemma in which they find themselves. And our prayer would be that no one would leave here today without turning away from their sin and placing their faith and trust in Christ as their Savior. And Father, for those of us who know Christ, let the world see him through us. Amen. God bless.